welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, and Forrest Temple. There was a study that made the argument that your brain never runs out of problems to find. And the researchers, they showed people fewer and fewer threatening faces over time, and they found that when they ran out of threatening faces to find, they started calling faces threatening that used to be called harmless. And in the security space, we're always thinking about our risk and threat factor. I wonder where in our industry you've seen us manufacture new threats as the environment over time gets safer. Oh, this is Mike Buckby. I think right now there is tremendous concern and very little practical things that can be done around the whole area of processor vulnerabilities where, yes, these things are happening and, yes, they're widespread and, yes, they could potentially be exploited, but in a practical sense, they're much more difficult to exploit than than I think the, the concerns about them potentially. This is Forrest, and actually something, this is sort of a counterexample, but sort of along the same lines, is, uh, you know, I like to always kind of point out when we find things like unresolved SIDs, but most of the concern I, I was aware of with that was that it was relatively low priority, potentially more of an issue of, you know, having to enumerate additional items in like an ACL and, you know, how that might just take up energy and kind of processing time, things like that. But it's actually just like last week or the week before reading about some attacks involving kind of like hijacking unresolved SIDs. So I don't know, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, maybe sometimes you think you're, you know, maybe getting overly suspicious about something than, than you need to. But in the end, it actually kind of ended up being an issue. I grew up in an area where there wasn't a ton of of crime, a lot of issues necessarily. So things like jaywalking, things like, you know, somebody acting slightly out of the norm, people were hypervigilant to it. I've seen more and more of people panicking over minor things that might not be a big deal. Often something that's spread by the social media, you know, a lot of times on or about social media and the dangers of it. Someone's acting slightly weird on there or you hear something about something that happened to one person, everyone panics and believes that we're all going to fall prey to it. We're all going to have it as a major issue in our lives right now. That's what we're presented as. Yeah, that's my, my take on it. Thanks, guys. And if you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, we'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game, and your nice reviews will help others find us. To learn more, please visit veronis.com forward slash review. And I started the show wondering how our brains assess threats because there is an article that thinks that because governments can't handle tech regulations and because they want to see regulations keeping pace with technology that maybe private regulators can do a better job. And do you think this is a case of the brain looking for problems? Because based on a recent interview with a cybersecurity attorney, Camille Stewart, who has experience in the public and private sector, she said that laws are built in the same way a lot of technologies are built in the form of a framework. And the reason why is that it leaves room and flexibility so that technology can continue to evolve. What are some of your thoughts when you read about, hmm, should we have private companies regulate us instead of governments? I can see both sides. So I think that on one side, a lot of times people who are in government don't understand the intricacies of technology and have difficulty figuring out exactly what the laws or rules should be around it. For instance, I remember the, what is it, the internet is a a series of tubes, that whole conversation, people who were making laws about the internet, how to regulate it, what what is it actually about, had very little understanding of the underlying technology, the implications and things like that. On the other side of the argument though, 
the way that I feel about it is it's, it's hard to, I guess, trust the companies who make the technology to set up fair rules for themselves. And a lot of times what you find is companies, since they know so much about the technology, they set up rules that, while they, they look great on the surface, may still allow them to exploit certain things that other people don't understand inherently. A lot of times it just, it, it comes off like they're they're trying to look good and what they're actually doing is kind of putting up a front while still exploiting the technology or exploiting the people who are involved with it for their own game. Who's actually the people who make it are more knowledgeable, but that's also part of the danger of it, I think. I think there's two different things here. And I really like what you start off with, Cindy, where you're talking about a framework. And there's laws that present a framework around privacy. And that's what I look at something like GDPR. And then there's incredibly prescriptive regulations that are set up like PCI compliance, which are somewhat of a mix of those things. And when you get into PCI compliance, it's very prescriptive in the terms of the types of technologies where, you know, it gets down to the version of TLS you're supposed to use and what type of encryption and what you're doing. And a lot of technology people express a lot of concerns around GDPR with like, oh, this is so vague. It doesn't even tell us what we're supposed to do. And I took a lot of umbrage with that just in that it does tell you what you're supposed to do. It just doesn't tell you how you're supposed to do it in the same way that, and you know, we're very myopic. We're really thinking about the tech industry, but you know, there's lots of other industries. And in the same way that it's very hard for me to go into like farming or manufacturing and say like, oh, here's how you should do this. I think there's still a place for government to have regulations about what should happen, that there should only be so many, you know, parts per million of pollution coming out of a smokestack because it, you know, causes people to cough and have all sorts of weird lung problems. Well, it doesn't matter how that gets down to me as much as that it does, whether it's a different type of fuel they use or something else. I feel that way about the tech stuff. It doesn't matter how in most cases, I just want reasonable things to be done to protect, you know, my privacy, reasonable things to be done to protect my data uh, if it's held in a private storage system. And I, I think that's the best way that it sort of future proofs that. Personally, I have a very hard time imagining that in the, the long term, any for-profit organization is really going to have the best interests of the consumers at heart. I mean, certainly market forces from consumers, I think, could potentially lead towards good things. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. I, I'm like, I can imagine that in the short term, you know, you can get some good solutions to individual problems. I would just be concerned that in the longer term, it'll just kind of skew in a way that's not really taking consumer concerns into into account, to be, to be completely honest. And I'm a little suspicious of this sort of thing. Well, I think there's this tension. I mean, there's tensions all over with with all this stuff. And I think PCI compliance is an interesting one because that is something where that's an industry-led coalition, the Security Standards Council. And there can is certainly a, a huge amount of fraud and issues with credit cards and everything else that they have really cleaned up. Where when people were first getting started and taking payments on the internet and things, they were just the sloppiest uh, standards applied to you know keeping credit cards in plain text in a database and not having this updated properly and not handling them properly. There's, from a consumer standpoint, definitely seems better now. And I think there were a lot of concerns raised about GDPR that people raised about PCI in terms of, well, if you're a small company, how are you possibly going to be able to deal with this? And like how it got dealt with is there were other companies that came along to help out with these things. So, well, I think it's hard to rely on a company. Uh, maybe it's better if it's a group of them. Yeah. And I mean, I think you see with compliances too, is there is like a, 
obviously this is not the case with PCI, but with, with other, you know, like GDPR, there's a, a regulation put out by a government. And then there's, you know, innovation and in how to meet that regulation. I, I, that's certainly valid. You know what I mean? I think there's certainly, you know, how can we most effectively and efficiently, you know, meet a compliance standard or something like that? Absolutely. I think there's, I, I would potentially trust, you know, organizations, for-profit organizations to effectively complete that. Don't get me wrong. I just kind of meant in terms of the coming up with, with new ones. But PCI is a good counterexample, certainly. Let's take a look at a few tech examples to see what we're contending with. First, there was an article about Samsung's default texting app sending random pictures to other people. And I can imagine developers shrug and say, yeah, it's a problem, but, you know, we can fix it. No big deal. Meanwhile, other end users or privacy pros might protest. When I encounter a scenario like this, it's hard to figure out what should our standards be? We wait until we get to the very end where is is that a data breach? And when people complain, is that unwarranted? I think there's two parts to this. One is, I think, a really interesting one that gets into both, you know, what are the responsibilities of the manufacturers for this and the people writing the software for this, where it definitely seems like it's an interaction between multiple of these different services, where it's the actual handset manufacturer and then also the carrier. And it's either one of them are fine on their own, but it's the interaction of the two that then causes this issue. And we see this a lot in all sorts of places where, oh, having this application on the server is fine and having this other one, but together they interact in such a way as to expose, you know, the database that they both rely on or something like that. So I, I think that's very interesting. My thought is that this would really come down on the carrier where that's where the relationship is and that, you know, especially in the United States, how phones are sold and things where they are an intensely personal device and they have all sorts of sensitive and private information on them. Whether or not it meets the standards of, you know, a general data breach, uh, I'm not sure. It's very hard to track and things, but what is actually in the pictures? It's a picture I took of my medical record. Suddenly it's a whole different issue. One thing that actually pops out to me that was actually really interesting, kind of part of Cindy, your question, was the idea of, and I maybe never put kind of two and two together here, but treating, potentially treating uh, a bug like this that results in data loss as being a breach, you know, potentially under, you know, the ways that you think about a breach of centralized data. You know, if you have a bug in software that allows decentralized data to be exfiltrated or breached or sent out inadvertently, is there some a similar responsibility there as a manufacturer or software provider as there would be if it was, uh, you know, data kept in a, a central, you know, unstructured or structured database? That's really more of a question than an answer, but that's what kind of popped out to me as you were asking about it. This is the sort of thing that I really think I, I can't imagine how they didn't test it ahead of time. If you're going to have a manufacturer using a certain messaging system on a specific carrier, I don't know how they didn't test it before they you know, sent it out to, to real-life customers. I think that the response of Samsung, if, if, if their response was, is something like, yeah, we can just fix it, there's already been damage done. There's, we've, already, we've heard about people who've had personal information, you know, or at least photos, sent out to people who they didn't intend it to. You know, Mike touched earlier on, you know, maybe I took a photo of my, my medical records, maybe I took a photo of a personal identifying document. I would even argue things that aren't inherently sensitive, even if you have just photos of yourself on vacation, that could potentially be a breach as well. That could be a breach of trust or a, you know, a breach of what you expect from a manufacturer when they make a device. If somebody sends a photo from your vacation or, or from a day that you took off, maybe you went to the ballpark, maybe you were supposed to be at work that day, that gets sent to your boss, that causes you your job. Well, whether I agree with you, the action you took or not, that shouldn't be something that is decided by your phone 
phone carrier. You know, that's not something that anyone would ever expect to have happen. So I think the reaction should be pretty strong from these manufacturers and, and there should be something done about it. It's, it, it. You can't just get away with saying, oh, I'm sorry, I inadvertently messed up your life or I inadvertently showed somebody a piece of your life that you never intended to share. I think there should be a stronger response than that. So here's another scenario that I couldn't quite think through in my head because I think that companies are doing the best they can and it requires a lot of people's engagement. Certain industries require all sorts of engagement with different types of people. It's sort of a regulation, not law regulation, but the manufacturer policing. So so what I'm thinking is it's hard to tell what Google is doing with the email. So they have policies in place that prevent employees accessing people's inbox, but then developers have access to inboxes that aren't policed in a strict way that promotes confidence with the public. And what pretty much sums up my dilemma is this quote where some people might consider that to be a dirty secret, but it's kind of reality. So third-party vendors and third-party developers, that's just sort of here to stay. It is an entire, practically an institution, I feel. But how is it similar or different from the Samsung situation where it's the Samsung texting app that was done by accident? Meanwhile, you have another manufacturer or service provider that is, is having trouble promoting confidence in, in the public sphere. I think a lot of this gets to consent and like our mental models for how this works, where from a technical standpoint, I'm not sure it makes a lot of difference whether it's, you know, phones that are sending out random pictures that we have saved on them or and we think of that still in a physical sense of like oh my device or me you know sending this thing out we think of that very differently than like oh the permissions on my phone were set so that anyone who wanted to on the internet could come by and look at the pictures. Even though functionally it's very similar, we have these different just mental models of how it works. And I think the mental model for how Gmail works and for how these other systems work is flawed in a lot of ways where it's an unknown whether it's a person interacting with these systems or whether it's, you know, an automated system and what those things are. And in a lot of cases, it still comes as a shock to people that third party tools that are interacting with your inbox can read that someone could even read all of your messages, even though that's like a very, to me, bright line between those two things. I'm thinking of like Unroll Me. I don't know if anyone's familiar with them from like a year or two ago, where they were lauded. People loved them for the longest time. And, you know, what they did was you would give them OAuth access to your entire Gmail box. They would unsubscribe you from all of your different newsletters and then give you one single newsletter each day that was a summary of all of those. And of course, that means they had to read all of those messages. They had to read all of your email to figure out what was a newsletter and what wasn't and had all sorts of fairly loose security practices, even though they had access to this information. But people never thought about that. And so you had situations like Lifehacker, which is supposedly, you know, all these like cool pro tips. They were recommending them for years. And then finally, there was like a fairly minor, you know, thing where people found out that uh, they were selling anonymized data based upon what was in your inbox and people flipped out. And, you know, just the realization that like, oh, something else is actually going on here and the, the company's gone now. So it's. I think a lot of it is just that, that we don't think about like, oh, every tool that touches this can do so much more than the, the rights, the, than what it says on the outside of the box. 
Oh, we should be clear that I think Unroll Me didn't want to deal with the GDPR madness, not because people found out that they had access to your inbox, right? People through an outrage, but it wasn't because that was the reason why they went out of business. Look, I've been looking in your inbox, all these emails from Unroll Me, Cindy. I see what they're doing to you. (laughs) At that point, you know, it was a matter of how much damage can be done with that information. If it's anonymized, is that really big of a deal? I had that service for a while. And after the the chat we had about it, I actually held on to it for a little bit longer because for me, it was kind of you know a matter of how, how bad is this actually for us or how bad is this actually for my privacy if it's completely anonymized. To your point, what pushed me over the edge to quit was when it was announced they couldn't meet GDPR or wouldn't meet GDPR. And I went, well... All right, that that doesn't make me super comfortable, and I just I got rid of it. So I think that's kind of funny. More to this point about what people expect of these vendors. Um, you know, in the article there was a screenshot of of what it says when you give one of these applications rights to your Google account, and it's a very simple blurb, and it says read, send, delete, manage your email. I think a lot of people who aren't cognizant of what that actually implies or what it means would simply skip over it. And there is a link for terms of service. There's information there that you can read, but most people are in a hurry. They may not understand the implications fully. While with Samsung, it was a lack of consent entirely. This is sort of kind of brushing it under the rug and kind of hiding it. You know, here's what we can do with your information, but it's presented in a way that is incredibly explicit about exactly how it's used. We can do these things, but then the ability to read also means once we read it, then we can do this with it, do that with it, do that with it. And I think that it was it's kind of a gap between the information they're mandated to provide to you about what we can do with your information and then what we are actually doing with your information once we have it. And I kind of wish there was more visibility or more transparency around that because I think people would make different decisions if that information was was upfront. I have to speak about Unroll Me. There's always money to be made with these kinds of services. If they wanted to be GDPR compliant, they would have taken the steps to do so, so that they wouldn't have to go out of business. They might have decided that the steps that it would take to get to GDPR compliance were not worth it, or you know they, they did their own cost benefit, and it turns out it was, it was too expensive or, or something like that. That's entirely possible. Oh, come on. I don't believe it. I think that there's good money to be made to promote privacy and that what I'm thinking of Anne Kavakian, who coined the term privacy by design, where you can protect people's privacy and can have these wonderful innovative technologies. I also want to go the other direction where companies who feel like regulations aren't catching up with technology fast enough. I just read right before our show that if a company, this is from the FTC, that if a company chooses to implement some or all of GDPR across their entire operations and makes promises, to U.S. consumers about their GDPR practices, they really need to live up to those commitments. Otherwise, the FTC is going to come after you if you don't comply with the GDPR promises for U.S. customers. And a bunch of states are implementing GDPR-like regulations. And I thought it was really surprising that Arizona, they upped their fine from $10,000 to $500,000 per breach and California's AB 375, it pretty much resembles GDPR. And I feel like because of how we experience the rate of change in technology, we want law to operate at the same rate. But I'm slowly becoming convinced that maybe laws shouldn't revolve 
revolve around technology. The FTC is the Federal Trade Commission. And so they're really worried around, you know, advertising. And so, you know, in a sense, they're saying, hey, if you advertise that you're going to protect people's data and comply by these things and do this stuff, even though in the United States, you know, right now, it's still to me an open question about, you know, exactly how much that comes in for, you need to abide by that, which seems totally above board and reasonable that if you come out and say like, yeah, we're going to warranty this car for 100,000 miles, or you say, hey, we're going to, you know, treat your data with respect and not just put it out there on the internet for anyone to take, you should do what you say. I don't know to what extent that actually gets back to whether it's, you know, technology or government or, or how that's coming into place. But I definitely think that the GDPR and all these state regulations and everything else that's happening are a definite reaction from everyday people to all the data breaches and to all of the different systems that have, you know, more data than we have. And I mean, you brought up Anne and her wonderful turn of phrase of privacy by design. And I really think that what a lot of these regulations are driving towards is people at least taking a breath and thinking, what impact will this have on user privacy? What impact will this have on the people giving us this data? Do we actually need this data before new systems go into place, before new applications go into place? That that's an improvement. That's an improvement for everyone. It's Mike's birthday, and I can't, I can't, re <laughs> I can't remember if you wanted us to sing Happy Birthday to you, or you'd rather share a tool of the week. I have a tool of the week, and we'll just call it my birthday gift for my birthday to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> AppFell. It's a Mac OS red teaming framework. So if people aren't familiar, a lot of security practices are split into red teams and blue teams, where the red team is the team that's trying to break in and find vulnerabilities and exploits. And the blue team is the team that is trying to prevent that from happening. And what's really interesting about this framework, and the reason it's called a framework, is that it's the suite of tools, it's written in Python, that you can then extend so that you're able to systematically apply this to lots of different situations or lots of different tests or lots of different networks. And it's for Mac OS, which is somewhat unusual because most of these tools are for Windows and for Linux. And so it's kind of neat that it's specialized and we're seeing in general, you know, more and more people using Mac OS in sort of an enterprise environment. So it's neat for all those reasons. You can run it on your Mac, you can play around with it. It's on GitHub and it's open source, so it's called AppFell. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, First Temple, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like this one. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.